Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. Our speaker this noon is Nian Cheng. She lived in China from the beginning of the communist regime in 1949 until 1980. She is a survivor, indeed more than a survivor, of Mao's frenzied cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. In her recent book, Life and Death in Shanghai, she tells in riveting detail how she withstood solitary confinement for six and a half years in a detention house for political prisoners. She also deals with the harsh reality of the death of her daughter as a result of the revolution. By dint of faith, character, integrity, wit, and tenacity, all of which we will be met with here today, I'm certain, she lived through it all, and she lives today to stand before us and to share with us. While our world lives with other forms of rabid fundamentalism and idealism gone off the rails, it will be good to listen to someone who has lived through something very similar in the near past into a saner future. Mrs. Chang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Meiser, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you all for honoring me with your invitation to be a speaker at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I love the Twin City, and the Twin Cities are good to me. During my promotion tour for the paperback of my book, I signed more books here in the bookstores than I did anywhere else in the United States. And this is my third trip to the Twin City. I came here first to speak at Carlton College then I was here on the promotion tour in May last year, and here I am again. And I'm coming again in April to speak to the American, uh, to the Academy of Medicine and the Minneapolis Women's Club. So you can see that you're extending to me a great deal of your wonderful hospitality, and I feel good to come here. What I have to tell you is my life in communist China. My late husband was a diplomat of the Kuomintang regime. We lived abroad as representatives of China. We returned to our own country at the end of 1948. My late husband was appointed Director of Foreign Affairs in Shanghai. We started to live in that city. We had a daughter at that time, six years old, born in Australia. 
When we returned to China, we found our country in a chaotic condition. After eight years of war against Japan, the nationalist government was not able to pull the country together for national reconstruction. During those eight years of war against Japan, China occupied, uh, uh, Japan occupied one third of China's territory and the middle class of China was literally rendered into poverty. At the end of the war, there was terrible inflation and corruption by the officials. At the same time, the communist army at the end of the war had occupied many areas of China. The map of China was dotted with bases of communist guerrilla forces. From those areas which were occupied by the communists during the war, they launched the civil war. After three years, in 1949, the Communist Party took over China. Many people ask, how could China, a country devoted to the philosophy of Confucius, accept communism? The answer is that the Chinese people were exhausted. They longed for peace after 11 years of political upheaval when they were rendered to be refugees and had to escape over and over again. They said anything was better than continued warfare. And before the communist army took over China, they circulated many propaganda materials written by Mao Zedong which urged the Chinese intellectuals and even the capitalists to remain in China and cooperate with the Communist Party to rebuild the country. This had a tremendous appeal to people like ourselves who were born and grew up during a period of China's history when China had to resist foreign invaders. Many people, like ourselves, chose to remain in China when we could have gone and made a living either in Taiwan or abroad. After Mao Zedong took over China, he, he depended on a series of political movements to consolidate his hold of the country. First of all, he launched the land reform movement to take the land from the landlords and distributed the land to the peasants. Then they, he launched the three and five anti's movement against the capitalists, so-called the owners of factories and businesses and a lot of them became bankrupt. Then he launched other political movements. The most prominent was the anti-rightist movement against the intellectuals, and he effectively silenced 
the Chinese writers, artists, and uh, other cultural workers. All these political movements, which took place every few years, naturally disrupted China's economic progress. Although it consolidated, consolidated the political power of the Communist Party, it also created disunity among the Chinese people because they were called upon to denounce each other, including family members. Wives would be called upon to denounce husbands, and children would be called upon to denounce their parents. However, all these political movements were initiated by the Communist Party against different sections of the Chinese community. Only the Cultural Revolution launched by Mao Zedong was one faction of the Communist Party leadership against another faction of the Communist leadership. So in essence, the Cultural Revolution was a struggle for power among the Communist leaders. The people were inadvertently involved. They were not the primary targets. The proletariat cultural revolution was initiated by Mao Zedong, primarily to recover the power he lost to the more moderate faction of the communist leadership. In 1958, Mao Zedong launched the, the Great Leap Forward campaign, and he had hoped through that campaign to promote economic growth. But instead, the Great Leap Forward campaign, during which time he, you might have heard, he made everybody to produce steel in their backyards, melt down your, uh, any iron that you could lay your hands on. Of course, the steel produced was not really steel at all. It's a terrible waste. And then he organized the communes in the rural areas. The land that was distributed to the peasants were taken back by the state. And all commune members, irrespective of the amount of work they did, were paid the same amount. Right away, people started to work less. And the crop grown in the agricultural communes were decided by the officials, not by the peasants who had to plow the land. And the decisions were often unwise and mistaken. So an area suitable for certain crop would be made to grow another kind of crop. So production declined drastically. In the cities, all the workers had to work in shifts, day and night. This resulted the widespread breakdown of industrial machinery, 
which needed to be serviced. Anyway, to put it in a nutshell, the Great Leap Forward campaign was a great leap backward economically. The moderate faction within the communist leadership realized that China could not go on like that. By the end of the Great Leap Forward campaign, people were severely rationed. We had four ounces of meat per person per month, four ounces of cooking oil per person per month. Chinese people didn't eat butter or dairy products. So you can see that there was widespread malnutrition. And on the streets in China during those days, you would see kids in shirts made of handkerchiefs because handkerchiefs were not rationed and the cloth was severely rationed. So the moderate leaders wanted to liberalize China's economy, give the peasants private plots of land and allow free market to exist. And Mao Zedong was obliged to give in because his failure, his policy led to failure. He nursed a grievance against the moderate leaders. He launched the proletariat cultural revolution primarily to destroy those leaders. And Deng Xiaoping, who is now the most powerful person in China today, who is about to receive our president, was one of those moderate leaders. Why did he launch the proletariat cultural revolution and depended on the Red Guards and other revolutionaries rather than to go through the normal process of have the moderate leaders voted out of the Politburo and the Central Committee was because by 1966, he no longer had a majority. He could no longer control the voting in the Politburo. So he had to depend on the Red Guards, who were teenage students who had grown up since 1949, who had no memory of China in the old days, who were indoctrinated to worship Mao and to obey him unconditionally. He called, Mao Zedong called it a cultural revolution in order to mislead his opponents and put them in a complacent mood. So they did not realize immediately that they were the targets. They thought people like myself who had foreign connections, who belonged to the capitalist class because my husband was a manager of Shell. The leaders were caught off guard after people like myself were dealt with. The Red Guards broke into my home, destroyed everything I had, put me under house arrest, and then I was taken to number one detention house for political prisoners where I was confined for six and a half years in solitary confinement. I was accused because of my Western connections. I went to an American 
endowed university in Peking and uh, British University in London afterwards, then my husband and I both worked for Shell, which had head office in uh, England. I was accused of being a spy for the imperialists and pressured to give a confession that I was a spy. Since I wasn't a spy, naturally, I could not confess. So I resisted their pressure in spite of the hardship uh, of living on a starvation diet and being fr frequently ill and often beaten up and even tortured. You know, the, when a person is taken from your normal environment and put into solitary confinement, it's extremely traumatic. You feel abandoned by society because you had to live in total isolation. In the six and a half years I was imprisoned, I did not hear a friendly voice. I never saw a smiling face. I was being constantly humiliated and beaten up. Many people who had suffered the same experience came through it much more damaged in their mind and in their spirit than I was. I survived my imprisonment because of my faith in God. Although the whole world seemed to have abandoned me, I knew I had the love of the Lord. In prison, I turned to God constantly through prayer and I was sustained and encouraged in my effort to uphold the truth and resist all pressure to make me confess I was a spy. Finally, they resorted to torture. I do not have time to describe everything I went through in prison. You will learn about that from my book, but I will describe to you the torture that was inflicted upon me. I was called to the interrogation room, and the several guards were there already. They started to push me from one guard to another. Very quickly, I became disorientated. Then a male guard grabbed the front of the lapel of my jacket. It was in January, very cold. He pulled me towards him. Then he threw me against the wall and I bounced against the wall and I was about to collapse on the floor when he pulled me up again and bounced me against the wall. He did it very quickly with lightning speed in a very expert manner. My heart was thumping, I was dizzy, and I vomited. But prisoner's stomach was always empty. Only water came out. It got onto his sleeve. He became disgusted. He threw me into a chair, and a female guard started to slap my face. At the same time, all of them were shouting to me, are you going to confess? Are you going to confess? I prayed to the Lord, give me strength. Give me the courage to face whatever is coming. So I raised my head, and I said calmly, I'm not guilty. I have nothing to confess whereby they put my arm behind me over the back of the chair and put around my wrist 
a heavy pair of handcuffs made of brass with a square edge. They put their hands around to tighten, so they fitted snugly around my wrist behind my back. Then they said, as long as you don't confess, you have to wear these handcuffs. If you don't confess for one week, you wear them for one week. If you don't confess for one year, you wear them for one year. If you never confess, you will die with those handcuffs. They led me across the courtyard. A blizzard was blowing and took me to another building where there was a punishment cell, which was literally a cement box about five feet square. They pushed me into the box at the uh, cell. It had no window, no light, and closed the door. I was out of breath. I bowed my head and I prayed again. Gradually, I recovered my breath. And I saw, because the door fitted very badly, a line of light was around it. I saw there was a piece of board on the floor. So I sat down and I put my head on my knees to rest. But the handcuffs were very heavy. They dragged my arms down. So I had to help hold my arms like this. For 24 hours, I was locked in that punishment cell with no water to drink, no food to eat, and uh, constantly they were shouting at me from outside, are you going to confess? Are you going to confess? At first I could answer, I'm not guilty, but later I didn't have any strength. Finally they took me back to the cell, my old cell. For the first three days I couldn't eat anything, I didn't know how to eat, but I managed to drink some water because the water for drinking was given to the prisoners in a mug, it was on the table. So I gripped the rim of the mug with the, my teeth and gradually lowering myself to a squatting position to let the water pour into my mouth and then gradually raise myself and put the mug back. I managed to drink some water, but I didn't know how to eat. The first two days I had pain in my stomach, but on the third day everything was peaceful, but I couldn't see. My eyesight faded, and I couldn't hear very clearly. That night, a guard came to the opening of the cell and said, if you starve to death, you will be denounced as a counter-revolutionary. I became very alarmed, thinking of my daughter, because in China, if a man is denounced as a counter-revolutionary, all family members would be denounced as family members of a counter-revolutionary. They will be denied their right to go to college, all sorts of persecution and prejudice, would, discrimination would be against them. I said to myself, I can't do this to my daughter. I'm not guilty. So I said to her, how, am I, how can I eat? She said, there is a way, think about it. Well, next day, when I was given the food again, I went to the window with my back to, the, to it and carried the rice cooked in the aluminum container to the table. 
and I used a spoon I had to scoop, loosen the rice, which was cooked in the container, and tip the rice on a small towel, turn round, bend over it, and ate some of the rice and cabbage like an animal. I managed to keep myself alive that way for 11 days and nights. In the meantime, the handcuffs had cut through my skin, broken my skin, and cut into my flesh, and there was blood and pus. Each time I had to scoop the rice, I shivered with pain, but nevertheless, I was determined to live through it all, so I did it. But finally, I fainted on the floor, and they took the handcuffs away. If President Nixon never came to China, I probably would have died. But he came, and Mao Zedong changed his policy. He decided to court America to earn American recognition. So people like myself were all released from prison. On the day I was released, they called me to the interrogation room. They said, after observing you for six and a half years, we discern an improvement in your attitude. So we're going to release you. I said, I cannot accept this conclusion of my case. Unless you give me a proper conclusion of my case, that should be a categorical statement that I'm innocent of any crime or political mistake. I'm going to stay in this prison. And the people's government must apologize to me for wrongful arrest. So I sat down. And you know, this man was very much caught by surprise. <laughs> then he said, this isn't an old people's home. You can't stay here all your life, you know. <laughs> well, I said, I don't intend to stay here all my life. If you give me a proper conclusion, I'd be only too glad to go. He banged the table. He said, this is the dictatorship of the proletariat. If I tell you to come, you have to come. If I tell you to go, you've got to go. So two female guards dragged me out of prison. What awaited me outside prison was the news that my daughter had died. I was told she committed suicide, but I didn't believe it. I did some investigation on my own, but the truth was not revealed until Mao Zedong died in 1976, when I was officially told that she had been beaten to death because she wouldn't denounce me as a spy. There was nothing to hold me in China. I waited for an opportunity to leave the country. Finally, I did, because I have two sisters here who are citizens. They sponsored me for immigration. The proletariat Cultural Revolution lasted 10 years. I was not the only victim. And what I had to suffer was by no means the worst. There are families completely wiped out. The official figure was declared in 1980, before I left China, 100 million Chinese had in one way or another suffered one form or another persecution during the 10 years of the proletariat cultural revolution. But something good came out of it. That is the present reform policy 
Had it not been for the proletariat cultural revolution, perhaps one day China would have adopted a reform policy. But it came much sooner because the proletariat cultural revolution completely discredited the communist government uh, authority and pushed China's economy to the brink of ruin. In order to win the people's support and revitalize China's economy, the leadership of the party had to adopt some reform measures. In 1979, Deng Xiaoping came to power. Immediately, he instituted economic reform and the open door policy. Today, we have tw over 20,000 Chinese students studying in the United States, an equal number studying in Western Europe. All these young people, perhaps not all of them will return to China. Nevertheless, those who do are going to make a big difference to China in the future. And many, many young Americans have gone to China to teach English. Every one of them is a living example of a person who is independent, who has the control of his or her own life for the Chinese to see. They, they didn't receive orders. They didn't have to ask permission from other people. This will help free the Chinese people from their habit formed since the communist regime came into power to always avoid making decisions but ask for permission or ask for directive from somebody superior. They had lost their independence. The reform policy in the rural area was an unqualified success. The peasants were allowed to work on their land and sign a contract with the government. Anything that is over above what they had to pay for taxes, they can dispose of in their own way. In no time at all, it produced wonderful results. The rural areas of China is changing. Instead of the mud huts with straw roofs, now we have two-story brick buildings. But when the reform policy was implemented in the cities from 1984, it met with many, many difficulties. Although private people are now allowed to start their businesses, to this day, less than 10% of Chinese economy is in the private hands. This is primarily because the government is reluctant to renounce socialism totally. They still have cling to the nationalized 
factories and try to turn it around from losing money to profitable enterprises. And until and unless the leadership would openly admit that socialism has not worked and will not work, that individual initiative and the free market system must be encouraged to exist in China. The reform in the cities cannot be a 100% success. At the present moment, there is very serious problem of inflation and also official corruption. But on the other side, there are encouraging news of the Chinese people grouping together to demand a greater measure of political reform, in other words, democracy. When they talk about democracy, they're not thinking that China should adopt a system like what we have in the United States. It is merely a demand that they be given more rights to govern their own lives. And the most encouraging sign is that many people in the Communist Party leadership are in favor of giving people more democratic rights. In China, we cannot hope to overthrow the communist government. There is no alternative, and China cannot have another civil war. Our hope is that the party itself will change. With the old generation dying out, the Chinese people hope the younger party leaders would see that the only way they could govern, the only way that China could make progress is to give the people some form of democracy. Thank you very much.